Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Podcast Public Service Announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. So what exactly were the specifics of the Cathar theology that so upset the church and its defenders in this era? Yeah, let's get into it. First things first, as we noted before, the Cathars didn't refer to themselves as Cathars. Peg notes. No Provencal heretic was ever styled Cathar by choice or accusation during the years of the crusade. The term seems to have been taken from a small and obscure group of heretics in 4th century Macedonia who called themselves the pure, that is, Cathars. The term came to be adopted in late antiquity as generic for all heretics. When anti-heretical efforts started up again in the 12th century, the authorities latched onto this by then ancient designation and slapped it onto those whom they sought to oppose in their contemporary world. How obscure was the origin of the term Cathar? Peck relates that a 12th century Cistercian presumed to generate his own history for the term, suggesting that it arrived from Cathas, the Latin word for cat and referred to the tradition among the heretics of kissing the hind parts of a cat, in whose likeness, so they say, Lucifer appears to them. With his vivid imagination and flagrant disregard for evidence, we can't help but feel this dude would, in another time and place, have made for an exemplary conspiracist. Anyway, to the Cathars who didn't call themselves Cathars, Christ was pure spirit, not in reality or even appearance, born of a human woman named Mary, who was not a woman at all, she was simply the will to do good. Christ therefore had no human attributes, for he did not eat, drink, suffer hunger, thirst or cold, neither did he die. He just went back to God when his mission on earth was done. Another notable difference that the faith had with mainstream Catholicism. Catharism had far fewer significant consecrated ceremonies than did the mainstream church, and what we now know about them comes, of course, from the Cathars' theological enemies. But one of the main ceremonies that everyone agrees was central to Cathar belief was the act of consolamentum, or literally consoling which Catholic theologians saw as similar to baptism in the mainstream church, quoting a contemporary anti-Cathar polemicist. The wretch who is to be baptized, or Catharized, stands in the middle of the meeting, and the arch-Cathar stands by him, holding a book which is used for this office. He places a book on his head and recites blessings, or rather curses, while those who stand around pray and make him a son of Gehenna. Lambert takes issue with this analogy, noting that the consolamentum is significantly different than an orthodox Christian baptism. The latter welcomes a new believer into the fold, often while that so-called believer is still an infant. But the former is a ceremony by which a standard-issue Cathar believer is enrolled in the much more select elite group of inner circle perfects or perfecti, 
These folks are somewhat analogous to the clergy in the mainstream church, insofar as the average Cathar believer has a duty to take care of the perfect's earthly needs so they can concentrate on spiritual matters. Lambert indicates that the relationship between the believers and the perfects was the spiritual heart of the movement itself. It's hard to explain how important the perfects were. They were the ones who had sworn a life of celibacy, vegetarianism, and complete devotion to the anti-material doctrine of the Cathar Church. For Cathar believers, the perfects were only partially material humans. They were also partly something more. For example, the one true spiritual God, the one who was not of this world, would only hear the prayers of the perfects, not those of unconsoled Cathar believers. And certainly he ignored the prayers of Orthodox Christians, since their prayers were aimed at the demonic God of this world in Cathar theology. It wasn't as if they, they didn't have a hierarchy, because there were bishops, and there were two classes of believers. There were those who went all in and adopted vegetarianism and celibacy and a simple itinerant life, and those became the perfecti. And then there were just ordinary people who tried to do the best they could, and, and that was enough. But they tended to reject the hierarchy of the church, so they rejected the authority of the popes, the archbishops. Cathars didn't go and build cathedrals. They met like early Christians in their own communities, worshiping wherever they could find a place to do so. One of the things the Inquisition noted is that when you were finding the Cathars, it wasn't as if you were going to march on the town and destroy their church and kill their priests. There was no physical church to attack. They were just the people. The Cathars, I don't think, started out as a secret society, but it was the persecution of the church that turned them into one. Because then you have to hide. Then you have to disguise and lie about what it is that you're doing. So they were a challenge to the wealth and authority of the church, but they were also a challenge to the whole theology of the church. They seem to have believed in two deities, a good God and a bad God. The good God, the bon Dieu, was all-forgiving and kind and wonderful, but the problem was he didn't actually live in the phenomenal world. Okay, I don't know. He was off somewhere in another dimension. That, that was the world beyond. Where we existed in this world was the construction of the demiurge, of the bad God, who wasn't really so much bad as he was just vain and stupid. And all of the sufferings and cruelty of the world was the result of it being an imperfect creation. That's Gnosticism, the vague term at best. You now, in some ways, it could be argued it's salvation through knowledge as opposed to salvation through faith. Cathars never called themselves Cathars. They simply called themselves good people or good Christians. That's the synopsis of Cathar beliefs, though, of course, there were a variety of disputations among the Cathars themselves. For example, there were those who believed that the two principles, the God of good and the God of evil, both existed from eternity. But there were others who followed a more orthodox Christian reading where Satan, the fallen angel created by God, was subsequently allowed to create the material world of bodies into which God placed the souls that must escape our cursed meat sacks to be saved. I see how the Cathars attracted followers with their in-the-know, but also fairly easy-to-understand theology. Precisely. Plus, they had some super sassy arguments against the more theologically challenging aspects of Orthodox belief. For example, Lambert relates an argument about the Catholic miracle of transubstantiation. Note, in standard Catholic theology, this ceremony literally transforms the bread and wine on the altar to the body and blood of Christ. But as Cathar theologians calculated, just to feed all of the priests who had celebrated the Mass over the previous thousand years that had elapsed since Jesus walked the earth, Christ's body would have had to be the size of a mountain. The mainstream clergy were not amused by this sort of wry rejoinder. No, and they became increasingly focused on the Cathar problem over the later years of the 12th century. 
Seeing the church tradition as furthering the preaching of Christ's true disciples who openly proclaimed the gospel to the world, Orthodox theologians obsessed on the fact that heretical teachers worked in secret. Well, that's because the mainstream church argued theology through the tried-and-true debate tactic of setting their opponents on fire. In spite of all the danger, it's easy to see the appeal of the Cathars to the residents of Languedoc in the 12th century. While there was still a hierarchy in the Cathar church, the perfects of the order were, indeed, a holy group set apart from standard believers, their authority was predicated on their dismissal of material things and focus on piety and spiritual development. Thus, they were a far cry from the growing perception by lay people that the wealth of the church and the sumptuous lives of its clergy of priests, bishops, cardinals, popes, and the like were not in keeping with the egalitarian ethos that Christ had preached. Thus, weakened by eminently reasonable criticisms of this kind, the church was particularly sensitive to any questioning of its authority. So, of course, these heretics had to be stamped out. In the Languedoc, the story of Cathar persecution starts with the failure of various Catholic religious orders to convert heretics to the one true faith, despite proselytizing in the region for years. This period is dramatized in a 1970s BBC documentary, where Brian Blessed blows the fucking doors off as an indomitable Cathar theologian. Welcome, Dominic, to Fangzhou. You have good news for us? Well, that is a matter entirely in your hands. You're having repeatedly rejected the gracious hand of God. Are you the hand of God, Dominic? Or the hand of the Pope? Is it in this that salvation is done? I mean, the cross is the handiwork of Satan. For on it he tried to destroy the spirit of God. The cross? A shameful instrument of torture. And is this not how the Church of Rome operates? By torturing souls? By preaching a God who causes suffering? Would you have us believe that it is the will of the Father of love, of goodness, of the Holy Spirit, to torture and break his own son? Ah, suffering is the craft of the impostor God, the rex mundi, the lord of this world, whom the apostle Paul says blindeth the hearts of men. The cross is an act of blindness. The crucifiers were blind, Dominic, and you are following them in their blindness. Are you so in favor of others sharing the miseries of life, Dominic? I mean, would you have us drag down an immortal soul and bind him to our labors and privations? The world is no place for the divine soul. The only hope for the soul in man is that he be awakened and released. Now, for the Church of Rome, <laughs> I mean, this would be too much of a kindness. I mean, the soul must be burdened with responsibilities paying priests and bishops to order him around, attending mass, giving confession to a priest who drinks more wine, has more women, and swears as much or more than himself. It's quite clear why we regard your mass with horror, Dominic. I mean, would not Christ also be horrified to find his followers claiming to divide his flesh as his enemies did? I mean, you say the host is part of the body of Christ. But even think that Christ is matter, that is disgusting. Any man or woman here can see that if you put all the hosts together, you would have a body as big as Monsignor. Again, you blaspheme the miracle of the church. Christ said, take, eat. This is my body, which I give to you. I am do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. I've preached to you. I've besought you with tears. But as the saying goes in Spain, where a blessing fails, a good thick stick will succeed. 
Now we shall rouse princes and prelates against you. And they, in their turn, will assemble whole peoples and nations. And so many will die by the sword. Towers will fall. Walls will be reduced to the ground. And you, all of you, will be reduced to servitude. Thus force will prevail, where gentle persuasion has failed to do so. In these public debates, Cathar scored far too many points with the crowd for the comfort of the mainstream church authorities, who Lambert reminds us were not used to being in a position of having to defend their views against opposing doctrine before a neutral or even hostile audience. The outrage and embarrassment felt by the authorities would eventually make their armed solution to the Cathar problem even more vicious than it might otherwise have been. And here was the biggest challenge of the church. The church had become a gigantic bureaucratic machine. It was a hierarchical system. The Pope, the cardinals, archbishops, bishops, prelates, legates, the whole system. Remember, the Pope viewed himself as more important than any king or emperor, for that matter. He was the most important person on earth. He was the vicar of Christ on earth. And so the church had assumed the character of a hierarchical, bureaucratic system. Even then, there were dissidents opposing that, arguing that, well, yeah, this wasn't how things started out. Was Jesus Pope? At the Last Supper, was Jesus sitting there with a papal crown on? Could he have worn one? Was that his relationship with his disciples? There was opposition in the lower levels, at least, of the church to what was seen as the church's arrogance and its opulence. You know, this is something else. The church is tremendously wealthy. It's got all of this gold. It's got huge buildings, whereas most people are desperately poor. I mean, this has been an internal debate in the Catholic Church as long as its existence, as long as I can see. There's no question that Catharism had become hugely popular in the region. Lambert surveys the extent of the heresy found by church investigators. Quote, the Inquisitors recorded large number of houses in places where the religion had struck root, as many as 50 in Mirepoix, for example. Unfortunately, these scribes were not clear on what percentage of heretics were carrots as opposed to celery or onions. Oh, Jesuit, really? A Mirepoix joke? Yes, and you're welcome. Pegg details a debate held in 1165 between Gillam, the mainstream bishop of Albi, and various Cathar authorities. In this public forum, the Orthodox record keepers confirmed that the Albigensian slash Cathars did not accept the law of Moses, or the prophets, nor the Psalms, nor the Old Testament, but only the Gospels, the epistles of Paul, the seven canonical epistles, the Act of the Apostles, and the Apocalypse. But these heretics also refused to clarify all kinds of theological questions about the baptism of children, whether or not they accepted the Eucharist. That is, the literal transformation of the bread and wine into the actual body and blood of Jesus during the Catholic Mass. Nor would they explain their thoughts about marriage. The only things they were clear about was that they would refuse to swear any oath, as they argued Jesus himself had refused to do in the New Testament, and that they were in direct opposition to the current church authorities and their unearned wealth and power. In 1177, Pegg relates how Count Raymond V petitioned the church authorities to help him root out the little foxes of heresy in his domain. Now, given how we're later going to see the Raymond dynasty constantly at odds with the church, this might seem odd. But the politics of the region and period of the Albigensian Crusade are at best confusing and multi-layered. As the most important nobles in the region, the Raymonds were constantly harried by, as Pegg puts it, Little wars brought on by the shifting loyalties and claims to the rightful authority over various small principalities in the region. It appears that by tarring his opponents with the stain of heresy, Raymond V sought to outflank his enemies by putting the authority of the church on his own side. 
However Raymond V may have been scheming to get the church onto his side, it would be generous to call the House of Raymond, which was the ruling family of Toulouse, the largest city in the Languedoc region, a group with divided loyalties when it came to the church-Cathar conflict. Especially considering Raymond's own son and heir is suspected, though probably not guilty, of ordering the cold-blooded murder of a papal official whose death was approximate cause of the eventual anti-Catholic crusade. Of Raymond VI, Lambert notes, He was complacent towards Cathars, moved perhaps by secret attraction and a curiosity mingled with sympathy. That sympathy was, at least in part, built upon the fact that many of the noble families in the region were firm and dedicated in the Cathar faith by this point. So, in this case, local ties and the need to keep prominent families as allies may have overridden the mores of the centralized church authorities for Raymond VI and VII, ensconced as they were in a very disorganized, tolerant, and unruly region. In the face of this at-best Cathar-curious local authority, and given that many northern nobles nursed long-term grudges with Languedoc rulers and coveted land and resources from the area, the time was ripe for a convenient moral panic that could serve as a pretext for an armed invasion. And that's precisely what eventually happened when the papal representative got got. And while Raymond V had tried to bring the church to his side against other political actors who supposedly countenanced heresy in the region, by the time an actual crusade was assembled to oppose these beliefs, Raymond's son was on the wrong side of it. Pegg relates how, as high-minded as the rationales for crusading might be, Certain earthly concerns may still have played a part, including the desire not to be seen as sympathetic to the Cathars, and to gain honor, and to pillage in the name of Jesus. Honestly, we can't put the mixed motivations better than Peg himself does. As much as they feared the cancer of heresy poisoning their villages and fields, they feared being attacked as pestiferous by neighbors signed with the cross. As much as they wanted to walk like the Lord in their own lands, they wanted to seize the goods of neighbors who had not yielded to the Lord. The crusade against the Provençal's heretics guaranteed a summer of exuberant war-making and the opportunity for sacred and martial honor. The first major assault by the crusaders was upon the town of Béziers. In advance of the coming army, a bishop urged the townspeople to turn over the heretics before it was too late, or failing that to leave the city at once. Otherwise, he assured them, the crusaders wouldn't bother to separate loyal Catholics from Cathars. The story of the massacre at Béziers, as related by Pegg, is truly horrific. After the city was surrounded, the youth who followed the crusading army as servants, thieves, and other peripheral figures were the first to invade and began sacking it. The heavily armed knights followed quickly, stealing and murdering to their heart's content. All men, women, and children who hid inside the city's church were beaten to death. Eventually, the whole town was set alight and quickly became a raging inferno. Béziers fell, and as the city was put to sack, a massacre ensued that horrified all of Christendom. The traditional ideal of the Crusades to defend Christians against violence had suddenly been perverted to inflict violence on Christians themselves. Christopher Tyreman writes that Béziers set the tone for what developed into one of the nastiest of medieval wars, partly because of the high stakes of dispossession and conquest, partly because of the collapse of social order and the erosion of the rule of civil law in a region that became a perpetual war zone. Some have called this assault the first act of genocide committed in Christian Europe, though of course it would sadly not be the last. The Béziers horror also yielded one of the most legendary and metal album title friendly quotes in all of history. A decade after the attack, it was reported, We should note, it was reported approvingly in a book designed to praise the figure in question as particularly wise. Anyway, so the report goes, an abbot, Arnaud Amalric, a spiritual leader of the crusading army, was asked by the crusaders before the assault 
how they would be able to sort the heretics from the faithful among Bézier's inhabitants. Thinking for a moment, Amalric reportedly replied, Kill them all. Truly, God will know his own. While this story may well be apocryphal, it's still an accurate reflection of the merciless attitude displayed by the Crusaders. We know the church was anti-heretic, but it can still be hard to understand the sheer depravity with which the Albigensian crusade went about its bloody business. Peg attempts to explain. Far graver than the unbeliever was the case of the heretic, who accepted the same revelation as his orthodox neighbor, but gave it a different interpretation, distorting and corrupting it, leading simpler men away from their salvation. Heresy was a spreading poison, and a community which tolerated it invited God to withdraw his protection. It's super important to understand this concern, which is very similar to that voiced by the quote-unquote orthodox pagan in response to the rise of Christians, a thousand years earlier. Just as the pagan understood his and his family's safety to be subject to the protection that the many Roman gods could offer if entire cities were united in their worship, so the medieval Christian believed that giving heresy a toehold could remove the protection of God from his home city or region and so rooting out heresy could be, for a believer, seemingly a matter of life and death. The Crusaders also took Carcassonne, though their method for doing so involved placing hexagonal tiles on a board to claim access to roads, territorial expansion, and points to be scored at the end of play. I'm pretty sure you're referring to the board game Carcassonne, and I'm equally sure you never played it. Be that as it may, real-life Carcassonne also fell to the Crusaders, in this case without direct bloodshed, but with the terrified occupants fleeing the city with only whatever they could carry on their backs, leaving the Crusaders once again to plunder the town for whatever booty they could find. Sumption records the history of violence as the Crusade scored victories. The first Cathar Perfect had been burned at Castle in September of 1209. Holocausts of unrepentant heretics had followed every victory. 140 at Minerve, 300 at Lavoir, 60 at Lecasse, and countless others caught and burned in groups too small to be noticed by the contemporary historians of the crusade. After the initial crusader victories, Lambert notes that it must have seemed the Cathar heresy would be wiped out quickly. But then Simon de Montefort, the crusading army's brilliant leader, died in battle trying to take the region's largest city, Toulouse, in 1218. This led to the failure of that siege, and in subsequent years the Cathar-friendly Raymond dynasty retook most of the territory the crusade had gained in the first place. But then the French crown and the papacy got serious, sent down a big, well-equipped army, and by 1229, Raymond VII was convinced of the need to throw over his loyalties to the crown. From that point, it was every Cathar for him or herself. Lambert gives us the setting of the Cathar's last stand in the 1240s, the hilltop fortress of Montsegur, noting that it was the perfect place from which to launch a thousand conspiracy theories about the Cathar's fall. Its dramatic position has provoked a variety of improbable theories, suggesting that it was a temple of the sun, a tabernacle of the Holy Grail, or the capital of an obscure cult of greater interest to 20th century mystics than to 13th century heretics. But there is no substantial evidence that Montségur was anything other than an exceptionally powerful fortress, which remained, alone among the many powerful fortresses of Languedoc, in Cathar hands throughout the crisis of the crusade. A group of 30 prefects had bought the protection of the Lord of Montsegur, a seemingly impenetrable mountain stronghold, and battened down the hatches there with extensive supplies to wait for the help of heaven, or perhaps for Raymond VII to have a change of heart and send help to his former theological allies. The Cathar Montsegur stronghold was surrounded by an occupying army in May of 1243, and they settled in for a long siege. Seeing that the Cathars were actually better supplied than expected, the besieging army made new plans. 
With a death-defying climb up the sheer cliff wall behind the castle, a group of fearless crusaders gained a foothold from which to assail the fortress in January of 1244, and after that, the only thing to do was negotiate a surrender. Those negotiations led to a rather strange, though unfortunately still quite bloody, denouement to the siege. The military who had defended the castle were allowed to leave without significant penalties, and the lord of the castle was even able to negotiate a 15-day period during which the Cathars were allowed to hold the fortress before the final surrender to church and king. Sumption is hard-pressed to explain why the defeated were so insistent on this period specifically, even being willing to exchange hostages to seal the deal, but he suggests the period might have had some religious purpose that eludes historians. Of course, this two-week period has fueled endless speculation from conspiracy theorists, who insist that the priceless treasure of the Cathars was, during this period, secreted away by the perfects of the faith never to be found again. Fucking ridiculous. Not so fast, Dana. Per assumption, Pierre Roger, the commander of Montsegur, did in fact have two deacons from Toulouse spirit away the gold and silver of Montsegur months before the surrender. Even better, the day before the final handover, he hid three or four heretics in his quarters and in the middle of the night sent them scrambling down the side of the mountain to find the treasure still resting in a nearby cave and dispose of it. So, right, it could sound like the conspiracists were onto something. But Sumption points out that this is the whole story in terms of what's historically known about this treasure and its eventual whereabouts. The conjecture of the conspiracists go well beyond these assertions, as we'll see later. Quoting Sumption, Of the nature of the Horde and the success of their venture, nothing more is known beyond the fruitless speculations of romantic imaginations. The rest of the story is far less romantic and far more horrifying. Though they knew it was a death sentence, several ordinary Cathars took the consolamentum and became perfects during the pre-surrender, as did several of the soldiers who guarded the place. Assumption takes it from here. On the 16th of March, those who refused to abjure the errors, they included all of the new perfects, were chained and driven from the castle gate into the hands of the besiegers. They were begged to recant, but none did so. In the plain below the castle, the royal troops had lit a huge pyre of wood surrounded by a stockade. On it, more than 200 Cathars died in the space of a few minutes. Some versions of the story have the 200 walking freely, joyfully, into the flames, singing hymns. In spite of the seemingly total victory of the mainstream Christian forces with the fall of Montsegur in 1244, Lambert notes that there was actually a final Cathar revival early in the 14th century in the area of Foix, the main figure of this revival being Pierre Autier, a singularly effective promoter of the faith who suffered the same fate as the Templars Jacques de Molay but a few years earlier in 1310. This, of course, means that the Cathars were still a weakened but going concern by the time the legends of the Templars' fall started percolating, with the last major flowering of Cathar faith finally stamped out by the 1320s. That was a very sad and kind of long story. Yeah, we probably could have cut some of that short, but on the other hand, we also feel like the history juice was worth the lengthy squeeze. But now, of course, we need to ask, why did this long, sad story eventually become part of so many conspiracists' history-spanning theories? First things first, and this doesn't relate to the rest of our story, but the Cathars are apparently central to one recent, spooky, woo-woo tale of reincarnation across the centuries. And one of the most intriguing cases of group reincarnation on record... Could a West Country housewife really have been possessed by the victims of a medieval genocide? 
It's March 1962 down in Bath and Dr Arthur Gurdon, who's an NHS psychiatrist, is working at Balebrook House Hospital and his last client of the day is a woman called Mrs Smith. And she tells him that she is racked with nightmares. Nightmares, in fact, which she's had since childhood. And they're very vivid, with extraordinary detail in them. But they're not about 1960s Bath. They're about a completely different period in time and a completely different place. Eventually, he comes to the conclusion that she is, in fact, being haunted by a terrible previous life. Dr Arthur Gurdon was a psychiatrist at Balebrook Hospital near Bath. He was well respected in his profession. He'd written lots of books and psychological studies. So what could have led him to believe that Mrs Smith had had a past life and that she'd been part of an obscure medieval sect called the Cathars? So that's fucking stupid. Indeed, but that's not the main story we want to deal with here. The tale that really animates most conspiracy theorists ties the Cathars massacre by the church to that of the Templars. Professor Spence, do your thing. For those who would point to the horrors of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the destruction of the Templars would be exhibit number one. And then, of course, the genocidal extermination of the allegedly peace-loving, genuine Christian Cathars would be another. One of the things the Cathars did is that their appearance or the challenge or threat that they presented to the church pretty much jumpstarts what would become the Inquisition, a permanent body within the church who essentially functioned as the Roman Catholic Church secret police. How do you deal with heresy? Well, one of the things you have to do if you're going to fight heresy is that you must understand it. They had books. They had holy books. Do you have any Cathar texts? None. All we know is that the Inquisition went out of its way to find every single one of those books and destroy them because they considered them to be dangerous. Now, knowing what we do about the Templars' beliefs... Some odd initiations and other stuff in there, but mostly pretty orthodox. As opposed to the Cathars' beliefs... Obviously, deliberately, and fiercely heretical from the perspective of the mainstream church. The idea that the two groups would somehow be connected via a centuries-long conspiracy makes no sense. If you'll recall from our Templar discussion, there has emerged some pretty solid evidence that the Templars were put in charge of protecting the Shroud of Turin, which is believed by some to be, but almost definitely isn't, the burial Shroud of Christ. But what we didn't mention to you previously is that the reason the Templars were apparently entrusted with the Shroud was to keep it out of the hands of the Cathars, because those Gnostics, with their purely spiritual no-body, no-death Christ, would surely have destroyed this priceless ancient relic, or medieval forgery, depending on how you look at it. On theological grounds, because the idea of Christ being a physical man who could even be wrapped in a burial shroud went directly against their beliefs. Moreover, while the Templars were not much involved in the Albigensian Crusade, they also did nothing to stop it and are not on record as having been particularly put out by the major crime against humanity that the Church was inflicting down there in the Languedoc. So where's the Cathar-Templar connection supposed to come from? Again, let's ask Dr. Spence. By the time that Jacques de Molay gets toasted in 1314, the Cathars are no longer a serious problem for the church, which isn't to say that they're not around. The reason why the Cathars and Templars are associated is that, again, roughly they inhabit the same historical era. 
the focus of most of their activity were in different places. But the Cathars are movements like the Cathars, the related Bogomils, again, stretched largely across southern Europe. They never seem to penetrate very far into the north. They're kind of a Mediterranean phenomenon to some degree. The Templars were active in Europe, but again, the center of their action was in the the Middle East, in, in the Holy Land. But they do overlap in the same period. They're basically united by who their enemy is, and their enemy is the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, we now know the Pope really wasn't as much an enemy of the Templars, that he wasn't without some degree of sympathy for them, but it didn't do him a lot of good. The viewpoint of a rationalist, anti-clerical Freemason of the 18th century was that in their view, the church, that is the Roman church, was basically everything that was wrong with history. Why is it that an 18th century rationalist anti-clerical Freemason would identify with this Gnostic sect from medieval Europe? Well, because they both hate the same thing. Because what, what were the Cathars saying? They were saying that the Catholic Church was a corrupt, illegitimate institution. And look at what Voltaire, look at the invective that Voltaire throws at the church. And Voltaire just loved anybody that hated the church. The church hated them, therefore they must have been doing something right. The thing about the Cathars is that, again, like the Templars, what happens to them? I think the last Cathar bishop, that it was 1430, well into the 14th, even 15th century, people who were viewed as sort of weird religious schismatics in Italy were still called Gazzari, or Cathar. That was always a kind of insulting term. Yeah, the first thing that connected the Templars with the Cathars is probably the fact that both were destroyed in some sense by the church. To the Masons and other freethinkers in the Age of Enlightenment, who adopted both Templars and Cathars as spiritual forebears, those groups were representative of the cruelties and horrors of the Church, which, to these same thinkers, represented everything that was bad about the world they inhabited. There are some fairly reasonable, sort of mainstream authors who draw some probably unsupportable, but not insane connections that attempt to mold the Cathars and the Templars into a tighter sphere of influence on each other. James Wasserman, whose Templars and the Assassins book we've quoted before, points out that the sacred kiss exchanged by Cathar perfects is similar to the illicit initiation kisses the Templars were accused of in their trial. And it's easy to see how the Templar spitting on and rejecting the cross thing was similar to the Cathar rejection of the centrality of Jesus' crucifixion and even of his existence as a physical human. He suggests that the Cathars' presence in France, one of the key power centers of the Templars, could have, when combined with the mystical influence of the Assassins and other Islamic groups, led to the existence of a sophisticated Templar spiritual elite who hid their tenets from the rank and file. He suggests that this tradition outlived the order itself, forming the basis for European occult and hermetic lines of thought to this day. But while most historians wouldn't even go along with this suggestion, the real crazy stuff goes much, much further, and it involves a whole other secret society we haven't mentioned yet, and a strange story about an obscure parish church. And most of all, it includes one of the biggest publishing phenomena of this young century. And so, let's explore the world of the goddamn Da Vinci Code.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.